It is rather odd that for Holy Trinity Sunday, the scripture readings were not chosen to underscore the mystery that while God is one, he is not solitary. For example, the first reading could have used the creation account from the book of Genesis when God says, let us make man in our image. That use of the plural, us, our, does not refer to God having outside assistance, but rather to the mystery that within God's being, there is a loving communion of persons that is the origin of all that exists. Our gospel text could have come from Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verse 19, which explicitly names the persons of the Trinity. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our readings instead take us in a different direction, a wonderful direction. The first reading from Exodus follows on the heel of a national disaster. The people of Israel abandoned the covenant that he accepted from God. They rejected him. They created and worshipped a golden calf. And God intended to destroy them, but refrained after Moses pleaded that the people be spared. And God said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. That expression, I know you by name, reveals the depth of intimacy that God has with Moses, that he knows Moses' very being better than Moses does. And what was true for Moses is equally true for every one of us. Then Moses asked God for a favor. I pray thee, show me thy glory. And God did, as we heard in our reading. God manifested his love for Moses. Now, our reading from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians urges believers, mend your ways, encourage one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The Greek phrase that Paul uses for and the, and, and the God of love, the phrase Paul uses is kai oteos tis agapis. As we saw last week, the ancients had different words for love. We moderns don't. And for the ancients, each word had a very specific meaning. And the word for love that Paul uses here is agape the highest, the noblest form of love, because it was sacrificial love, the placing of one's personal needs as secondary to those of the other, even if it's at great personal cost. God loves each and every one of us, even though it's not to his advantage to do so. He takes the risk that his love could be neglected, ridiculed, abused, rejected. This unconditional, freely given love comes from the core of God's being. We do not merit it. We do not deserve it. We could not possibly earn it. It is a totally gratuitous, free gift waiting for our response. 
Even more remarkable, says Paul, is that we are graced to share this very love with each other. Now, whether we do or not, well, that's our choice. And this is also made clearer in the Apostle John's first letter, chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Maybe that doesn't really ring a big bell for us. But you know, you will never hear a statement like that. God is love. You will never hear that in Judaism. You will never hear that in Islam. You will only hear that in Christianity. God is love. And perhaps because we moderns have so trivialized the word love by indiscriminately applying it to all kinds of stuff, We've lost an appreciation of how radical and transformative a word it is. I've often argued that Christians can recapture from the culture the radicality of love if we would just make an effort to restrict its use to God, to one's spouse, one's children, one's friends, to other people, and not use it to describe one's favorite ice cream, or restaurant, or movie, or some other inanimate object. Our gospel text from John underscores how radically God loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. What does God want from you? What does God want from me? What does God want from every human being? It's simple. To live with him for eternity. To share forever in the divine love he experiences in this intimate communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To do so, God allowed himself in his Son with whom he shares completely that one undivided divine nature, to experience and take into the depths of his being the ultimate insanity of our fallen nature, the depths of our arrogant depravity, to reject and kill God so we can become gods. It is the ancient temptation from the Garden of Eden, and we still experience this stinking thinking. It's called sin, which is always a rejection of God's love in our thoughts, our words, and actions to do what? To get rid of God, to become a God. It's crazy. It's insane. It's utterly poisonous to ourselves and to others, but it's real. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all experience it. So how does God still love us in such moments of poisonous self-destruction? I'd sometime take a look at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. 
He tells us that in order to be prevented from becoming too elated in his ministry, maybe a little too prideful in his ministry, he was given what he, was, what he calls a thorn in my flesh. Now, the Greek word for thorn carries the concept of something very sharp, very painful. It could even be a serious illness. Now, what was Paul's thorn in his flesh? Was it pride? Arrogance? Was it jealousy of the other apostles, which we know he struggled with? Was it a bad temper that every now and then got away from him and popped up, as we see in his letter to the Galatians? Some have even theorized that Paul struggled with a sexual issue. We simply don't know what his thorn was. And that's a good thing. Because then Paul becomes so much like the rest of us. We each have our thorns in our flesh. These deep, painful, penetrating, sharp, horrible experiences. These struggles. And Paul tells us, he begged Jesus, please remove this thorn. And how did the Lord respond? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There is the radicality of divine love. When we offer up the thorns in our flesh, those painful, sharp, horrible things, whatever their nature, and we rely on divine love that is always being offered, we can persevere despite the thorn. How? As I've said so many times over the years, and I say it many times because, well, it's just so hard for us to believe. The Lord sees past our thorns. He sees the potential that each of us has when we say yes to his love. He sees the good that we are empowered to do despite all our failings and all our weaknesses. He sees the glory that awaits us. While you and I are usually preoccupied with our daily slogging away in all the muck and mire of this life. The readings today are not about giving us a theological insight into the mystery of the Holy Trinity, as important as that is. The scriptures rather call us to place our trust in divine love, whatever thorn or thorns we struggle with. The love that brought us into being. The love that went to the cross to deliver us from eternal death. The love that even now calls us to live this life fully.